0: Hey there, it's me, Malika Bilal. I'm handing over the mic today to my colleague, Kevin Hurden. Enjoy, and I'll be back.
1: Another Olympics have come and gone. With so much incredible athleticism and camaraderie on display, it can be hard not to get wrapped up in the moment. Like when Tunisian swimmer Ahmed Hafnaoui went from worst to first. Surprising everyone, even himself. Some athletes made history for their country.
0: Hey, Diaz is the
2: first Filipino to ever win an Olympic gold medal.
1: And who could forget this one? The Italian and Qatari high jumpers, two friends, chose to share a gold rather than compete in another jump-off.
2: And they won both. Taste gold in Tokyo. This is an absolutely insane night in
1: the stadium. But now the games have finished. The party's over. And as athletes and sponsors leave town... Tokyo could be left with an Olympic-sized hangover that will be very familiar to host cities in the past. I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. There's a common trope in every Olympics broadcast, the stadium flyover. While international audiences are treated to gorgeous aerial views, the residents of these host cities are largely left out of the picture. But if past is any guide, they're the ones who will be left to deal with the debt, gentrification, and displacement that can come from hosting the games.
3: Olympics are not all the same, so some cities build bigger or better or worse than others.
1: That's Christopher Gaffney. He's an associate professor at New York University, and he's spent many years looking at the effects mega-sporting events like the Olympics can have on a city.
3: Typically, people in the suburbs of a city are not gonna be affected at all. But then you have people living in the central cities who may be displaced by stadiums, who may have their homes taken through eminent domain. We'll see an increased militarization of urban police forces. They will see their scarce public resources go towards building elite sport facilities. And they will also have this event capture that not only takes over the urban narrative for the 10 years leading up to the Games, but for a generation of urban planning. And so for people living in the money shot areas, for the flyovers of Olympic cities, they'll be the ones that are most effective.
1: And this happens over and over again to cities that host the Olympics. Hundreds of thousands of people were evicted from Seoul ahead of the 1988 Games. Atlanta demolished one of the first public housing projects in the U.S. before it hosted in 1996. And more than a million people were displaced ahead of the Beijing Olympics in 2008.
3: Another home is turned to rubble and dust. In years to come, the demolition men of Beijing will look back on this as their golden age. But many local people remember it as the time that Beijing sold its soul.
1: When we see these beauty shots, they're just drone shots of how great the city looks from afar. And rarely do we zoom down to see what the city is functioning like below just the glossy, wide-angle shots. So this idea that that a city might take a low-income area, raise it, and then beautify it or or, or build venues there. That's almost a feature of the Olympics going back decades, right?
3: Oh, absolutely. I don't call it a beauty shot. I call it geoporn. And so you have these flyovers that look good. They stimulate the appetite for tourists and investors, but they hide the structural violence inherent to rapid urban development in the service of an elite sporting project.
1: So let's start with Tokyo. You went there in 2019 as the city was in the final stretches, or so it thought, of preparing for the 2020 Games. It's now 2021. But So how would you say that the preparation was affecting the everyday people of of Tokyo, from your experience?
3: Tokyo is a very well-organized, very wealthy, highly functional city. And one of the ways in which Olympics are less impactful is that the larger city you host them in, the less you're going to feel it. In specific areas of the city, however, we could really see that there were gentrification pressures underway. Private taking of public lands to build the Olympic Village was kind of vectorizing development in Tokyo towards the bay. The idea is that this would spur development in that area, so Tokyo would become less affordable for some, and the upper middle classes would have new, nicer places to live along the water.
1: Specifically to Tokyo, was this being used as a way to justify urban planning, or do you think it was the gentrification is a byproduct of the Olympics?
3: I think it's an intentional byproduct of the Olympics, and in, in that you target specific areas for new development and then push lower income or less desirable people, less rentable people, out of the way. And this certainly happened around the National Stadium, but we also see. That the places that are targeted for Olympic tourism, such as the parks around the Olympic Stadium, where there were homeless people who had lived there for quite some time, they were being treated very poorly by the government. Elderly people were being pushed out of housing developments that were post-war housing developments that were old. But they were their homes, and they were destroyed to make way for new high-rise condominiums around the Olympic Stadium. And so the people that I was meeting in Tokyo were pushing back against this project of, within scare quotes, beautification, gentrification, renovation of areas in which they lived.
1: There's always a cost-benefit analysis that you probably do when you decide to host the Games. And no one could have anticipated that there'd be a global pandemic but it does seem that Tokyo, so much of the benefits side of the ledger has been wiped away and they're just dealing with the costs.
3: The cost benefit analysis, when we think about the GDP of Japan, the Tokyo games are a drop in the bucket. The Japanese economy is the third largest in the world. It's, it's not going to take a ding by $15 billion of spending or $20 billion, or even $100 billion to the Japanese economy is not all that much. In the local context, it's a lot. There are real needs in Tokyo that should have been addressed, especially in a city that's going to be ravaged by rising sea levels, increasing typhoons. And the Abe government was very insistent upon pushing these games as a mode of recovering, quote unquote, from their nuclear disaster. March 11, 2011. Japan's east coast is rocked by the most powerful earthquake ever recorded in the country. The deadly wall of water engulfing entire communities. It left around 20,000 people dead or missing. And it caused a meltdown at the Fukushima nuclear power plant that led to more than 150,000 people being evacuated from surrounding areas.
1: Tokyo was announced as an Olympic candidate back in 2012, just about a year after the Fukushima disaster. And, like Chris said, the Olympics this year have been promoted as the recovery games. The famous Olympic torch relay even began in the Fukushima prefecture. But the choice to host the Olympics in Japan wasn't universally popular. There was pushback from activists like Takatoshi Sakuragawa. The decision to let Tokyo host the Games came soon after the Great East Japan earthquake. I was shocked that Japan was still bidding for the Games. I wondered why they were pouring energy into something like the Olympics, even after our worst ever disaster. That's something Chris heard from people he met on his trip to Tokyo too.
3: In, in Fukushima prefecture, one of the women that most impressed me was a, a city council member. She guided us around her city that was still completely abandoned. People couldn't go back to their homes. And the government's response was so cynical. And so they're dealing with a problem of radiation, of dislocation, of abandonment, that is going to take decades, if not centuries, to heal. And the government, they were calling this the recovery games, had earmarked money for housing assistance for all these people that were forced from their homes. It was going to stop as the Olympic games began. They're going to wrap up the cycle of recovery with the games. And so the level of cynicism that I saw in preparation for the Tokyo Games was probably worse than anything I've even seen in Brazil, which is a very cynical place in terms of its relationship between the government and its people.
1: Those 2016 games in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil have become famous for their effect on the host community.
2: Rio's mayor reportedly ordered residents be removed from 14 of the city's favelas or urban shanty towns in preparation for the 2016 Olympic Games.
3: When I was living in Rio in the six years leading up to the Olympics, I talked with hundreds of people who'd lost their homes to make way for transportation projects, to make way for stadium projects, or not even stadium projects, but for parking lots for stadiums.
1: The issue of displacement around the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro was well-documented before the Games, and it's still a problem now. We heard from Teresa Williamson, a Brazilian urban planner. She's the executive director of Catalytic Communities, a Rio-based nonprofit that works with organizers in the city's favelas.
0: When Rio was designated as host city for the Olympics, the general reaction in Brazil was positive, particularly in Rio, which was gonna be the host city. We had had a stagnant economy and it was seen as sort of, well, any investment is better than no investment. And people were very hopeful about what those investments would bring in terms of development. And that was even in the city's favelas because the government announced programs to theoretically upgrade all the city's favelas by 2020. They announced the cleaning of the Guanabara Bay, which is heavily polluted. They were going to plant 24 million trees to offset the carbon from the games. But from my perspective and our organization's perspective, any sort of possible, hopeful reaction was short-lived because within days we had heard of a community facing eviction.
1: Favela communities in Rio fought back against the threat of eviction, and with some success. But tens of thousands of people were still displaced.
0: It's been five years since the games were held in Rio, and unfortunately the effects linger and they won't go away anytime soon. I think it's a permanent stain on the city, especially in low-income communities. People were almost universally sent to worse outcomes. Some people were given monetary compensation that didn't cover rent for six months, much less uh, a new home even in a favela. Some people were given public housing, but it was two hours from their original homes. We've also seen commute times increase, even though the main investment, the legacy project of the Olympics, ended up being transportation. But it was so poorly planned. And so many of the bus systems that previously helped people get to work and get around the city were ended so that they could create these alternatives, which actually are in many ways less efficient. So it's very complicated. Basically, to summarize it, inequality was exacerbated in a city that's already infamous for its inequality.
1: And like Teresa said, the effects still linger. Chris told me about a friend of his in Rio who lived in one of these communities where the Olympic Park was built.
3: And she had a, a lovely home that she and her husband had built over many years, and it was just destroyed so that an access road could be put in. And it was extremely traumatic for her and her family, in addition to the other people that lost their homes in that place.
1: Wow. It's one thing to lose your home for a venue, but an access road to a venue that's not in use, that's that's tough to, tough to deal with. It feels like almost... These people are swept up in a in like a flood or in a raging river and there's just no stopping it.
3: And I think that's a very apt metaphor for what's going on, because what the games are trying to do is to open avenues for increased flows into the city. And one of these increased flows is is international finance capital. And so the city or a city like Rio, Tokyo, Los Angeles is betting on. Using the Olympics as a mechanism to plug into ever more rapid and voluminous global flows of tourists, of money, and the people who get swept away are those who are not in a position to take advantage of those flows.
1: That's something more and more residents of potential host cities are considering. And some are mounting campaigns to keep the Olympics out of their hometown.
2: My name is Johnny Coleman. I'm an organizer with No Olympics LA. We're all volunteers, so this is stuff we all do in our spare time.
1: Los Angeles, in the U.S. state of California, is set to host the 2028 Olympics.
2: Los Angeles, 28!
1: But for a few years now, no Olympics LA has been organizing against bringing the event to their city.
2: The campaign started about a little over four years ago in 2017 after Boston kicked out their bid and L.A. by default kind of became a front runner. And we formed with a bunch of people organizing around housing and homelessness, gentrification and policing.
1: These are all problems Los Angeles has struggled with for a long time. The city's mayor, Eric Garcetti, has even called homelessness the humanitarian crisis of our lives.
2: I think a couple weeks after we launched officially the annual homelessness count came out and homelessness went up, I think, 23 percent
1: at large in L.A. And the numbers are even higher now. No Olympics organizers say these are all issues that tend to get worse when a city hosts the games.
2: Our stance from day one is that it doesn't matter if the Olympics, quote unquote, make a profit for the bid or not. They shouldn't exist because they're always going to increase inequality. They're going to accelerate policing. They're going to accelerate evictions. They're going to accelerate privatization of public
1: space. I want to hone in on one point Johnny made about profits. Los Angeles is touted by Olympic supporters as a great spot for future games. It hosted in 1932 and again
3: in 1984. For the second time in the same century, in the same arena that made history in 1932... The city of Los Angeles is again proud to be the host of the Olympic Games. So it
1: already has some infrastructure, like stadiums, ready to host again. And unlike most Olympics, those games were profitable. But Johnny says the story is a little more complicated than that.
2: When we talk about Olympic profit, it's always profit for who, because the majority of that went to the IOC, as it always does. And then about, I believe it's about $92 million, didn't go back to the city of L.A., and went to a private
1: nonprofit. So, the IOC is the International Olympic Committee, the organization that puts on the Games. And the nonprofit, Johnny mentioned, is the LA 84 Foundation. They gave grants to youth sports organizations in California.
2: The LA 84 Foundation has put its logo on a lot of places. They've doled out a lot of micro grants over the years, which is fine, but we feel like our local school system and parks and rec system could use that instead of having to apply for different grants. And so, It's always like a profit for who, right? We feel like even if that $100 million had gone back to the quote city in a real literal way, we still don't think that'd be worth it.
1: One reason comes down to the legacy of those games on the Los Angeles Police Department. Thanks to the games, the department received federal funds, which it used to buy things like machine guns and rifles. It was considered one of the most expensive peacetime security operations in the U.S. at the time.
2: And so when I look around and see this, like the kind of hyper-militarized police that are all around me in my neighborhood and the, the helicopters flying over daily, like I think a little bit of that you can attribute to the 84 games.
1: Chris says that all of these issues, displacement, policing, inequality, they're not unique to the Olympics, but the games do speed these things up.
3: It's really something that is common where you have governments and and nominally elected democratic leaders who take an event like this to push forward a vision of the city that doesn't include a lot of people. This is not specific to the Olympics, but the Olympics do it again and again and again all over the world.
1: So despite all of these problems we've outlined There are millions of people, billions of people will watch this and they're probably watching because at some level they they enjoy the show. Do you think there's any reason to salvage the games? Are they worth fixing? Is there a way to fix them?
3: Olympic boosters will say, well, it brings together a global community. We really need this to understand our, our shared humanity and to feel good about ourselves as a species. And that seems like a pretty hollow argument to me. If we took even a small slice of the resources that we dedicate towards elite sport and put that towards solving issues of homelessness or water, clean water, or finding new energy, you can make the argument that we'd be celebrating our shared humanity in a much better way. And so for me, it's broken. It's a business that is predicated on extracting resources from cities with real needs And then saying, oh yeah, that was fun. Let's do it again in four years. And then we just kind of repeat the same question.
1: Teresa, back in the 2016 host city Rio, has some advice for residents of potential cities. Advice that might move us towards a different question.
0: What I'd like to say is to candidates of future cities, I honestly think that if a city is bidding for the games, we need to rethink the people running our cities. (laughs) There's no reason for a city leader who actually wants to improve the quality of life for the majority of their people to bid for the Games. The benefits will not come to those people. It is possible to stop a bid. It's a lot harder to stop an Olympics from happening or to stop the consequences or to try to steer those resources towards good, productive, enhancing qualities for the majority of residents of cities.
1: And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilvey and Nagin Oliai with Dina Kisba, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal. Tom Fenton is The Take's story editor, Alex Roldan is the sound designer, Aya El-Milek is the engagement producer, and Stacy Samuel is the executive producer. We'll be back.